Alrighty, we're back. Quick turnaround. Welcome back to Views from the Hill, episode two. It's game week, finally. I was thinking back on this a couple days ago. I remember seeing different tweets over the course of the summer saying like, oh, we're X amount of days away from Hawk football. And one of them was like, oh, we're Ray Dominguez number of days away from Hawk football, which is like 72. It felt like a year ago. And well, you know, here we are. 67 days later, we got five days left until Hog football. Run DMC amount of days. The Hogs kick it off against the Western Carolina Catamounts and Little Rock at noon on Saturday in War Memorial Stadium. The game time got moved up. It was originally at three. It got moved up. I think it's for heat purposes and then travel purposes as well. I also think they might be struggling to sell tickets in Little Rock. I think there's only like 40,000 sold tickets as of now. But it's a hard game to get up for. It's during one of the hottest times of the year in Little Rock when we play a team and nobody really cares about. But regardless, this past week was week zero, which was a little anticlimactic. It still didn't give me quite the college football feel. I thought that week zero would give me. Week zero last year had some good games like Nebraska, Northwestern. Illinois played a good game last year in week zero, but... The closest game this year was Hawaii Vandy. Then also heard that Hawaii's locker room was a tent outside of Vandy Stadium because Vandy Stadium is being renovated. The freaking Notre Dame Navy game would have been a lot more exciting if Navy didn't get their ass whooped. I mean, good lord, thirty-five to nothing at halftime. Then if you lived in Fayetteville or NWA and tried to watch it, or Heck, even Little Rock, the local NBC channel, was showing the Chiefs-Browns preseason game. If you downloaded Peacock, that was a process and a half, like myself, which was stupid. But if you wound up finding out a way to watch it, by the time you actually turned on the game, it was probably 21-0 Notre Dame already. But we'll get to a more serious matter, which is the game on Saturday. We're going to cover a multitude of topics. We're going to talk about some week one matchups to watch for, my bet of the week, some new rules that are being implemented in college football this year, what's going to be our best win of the season, in my opinion, previewing Western Carolina, the depth chart, what to look for offensively, defensively, and then you know some new faces to watch for, freshmen, transfers, starting wide receiver group, and then I'm going to touch a little bit on the difference in a Travis Williams offense, or Travis Williams defense, excuse me, and what we'll do schematically versus, say, a Barry Odom defense or any defense of the past. And then we'll get to my score prediction. So that is today's agenda. Let's jump into it. All righty, so to kick this episode off, we're going to talk about just some of the solid, some of the solid college football matchups across the country in week one. There's about 10 to 12 good ones, but before we jump into that, I was thinking about this on the way up here. It seems like every year, college football, and just football season in general, college football, NFL, goes by a lot quicker than the year before. It just seems to be a repeating process, and it seems like it takes longer and longer each year for football season to get here. And then for the 12 weeks of the regular season we have, it, it flies by. So we need to cherish college football. I know it's hard to cherish college football when, especially hog football, when we're blowing games to Liberty and shit like that. But college football's fun. It, it gets cooler outside. You know, we're a year away from 
a lot of conference realignment. Where I mean, even this year, you got the Big Twelve with some conference realignment. Then, with the college football playoff expansion next year, there's some exciting times coming in college football. But this is kind of the last season of regularity that we've been so accustomed to for so long. Like the Pac-12 having the certain teams in it that it does. The Big Ten, the SEC. I mean, even the ACC. I mean, next year, Texas, Oklahoma joining the SEC. Then you got all the good teams from the good teams from the Pac-12 joined the Big Ten, USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. I don't know who the hell else is going to be in the Pac-12. Oh, also, Colorado's joining the Big 12, I believe. So there's going to be a lot of changes coming next year. So this is kind of the last year to really soak it all in before a lot of change comes in the next couple years. But we'll go through some of the college football matchups across the country First off, the best game on Thursday night. We got football on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. That's amazing. College football the entire weekend. And we got an extra day on Monday off work to watch football as well. Starting off on Thursday, Utah versus Florida. I don't know how this is only a – I don't know how the line's only a touchdown. I think Utah's going to roll them by like at least two scores, I think. Last year was a little bit of a fluke. I thought Utah blew him out last year, but Anthony Richardson kind of balled out. For some reason, people put him in the Heisen race, even though he didn't throw a touchdown. Next thing you know, they're losing games to people that they shouldn't lose to, and they go 6-7. and seven. But regardless, this game's in Utah. I think Utah's going to win big. And if I'm telling you right now, if Florida doesn't start out, start out well or play well this season, they got Dan Mullen out of there and, like, either a year and a half or two years. They will not be afraid. Actually, it was probably a little bit longer longer than two years. But regardless, in 2020, Dan Mullen went to the SEC Championship game and they fired him halfway through the next season because he wasn't performing up to standards. They're going to do the same thing with Billy Napier because he doesn't have a track record like Dan Mullen. So I got Utah big in this one. Go to Saturday, Virginia versus Tennessee. Tennessee's going to blow out. Virginia's not going to be close. Next game is West Virginia versus Penn State. That's going to be a fun game. That's on Saturday night, I believe, on ESPN. I think it's at Penn State. I think Penn State will blow them out as well. West Virginia's quarterback last year was JT Daniels, and he transferred to Rice. It's like his 48th school in four years. And you got UTSA versus Houston. Shout out Jeff Trailer. That dude is – that dude flew under the radar at Arkansas. He was probably the only bright spot on that coaching staff with Chad Morris – outside of Justin Stepp, and I'd still – and Barry Lunny, Justin Stepp, and Jeff Trailer, but I'd give the nod to Jeff Trailer. I mean, the guy's a head coach, and he's doing pretty well at UTSA. If he keeps this up, he'll probably get a head coaching job somewhere else at a bigger school. But I want UTSA to win just because of him. Nebraska at Minnesota, beginning of the rule era. Shout out Boobak. Got the over on the Huskers wins. I don't know anything about Minnesota other than they got Mr. Trailblazer himself, P.J. Fleck, at the helm. Clemson at Duke, that's on Monday night. Then Clemson will blow them out. Colorado at TCU, that'll be interesting. Everyone's going to be so excited to see Prime. I mean, Colorado couldn't have a worse start to the season. They go to TCU. I think they go to Nebraska. Then they have a cupcake at home. Then they play USC and Oregon. That's four L's in their first five games. I'm sorry. I don't care how good Shudder Sanders is or however the heck you say his name. You got North Carolina versus South Carolina. That's game day. 
I think UNC's. I hope UNC blows out South Carolina. I think Shane Beamer's kind of a fraud. Same with Spencer Rattler. Ever since the show, like QB one on Netflix, I don't know if you ever saw that. Spencer Rattler's been a fraud. Um, that game's being played at Charlotte, the Panthers State, and then you got probably the best game of the weekend: Florida State versus LSU. That's on Sunday night. Game last year was super close. Florida State blocked an extra point to win it, I believe. Either blocked it or LSU missed it, but LSU's a lot better of a team now than they were at this point last year because after that game last year, it was so cringe. I remember it because Florida State wasn't coming off. In 2021, they didn't have the best year. Then they beat LSU, and and Brian Kelly was kind of the laughingstock of college football for a while, but he turned that around threw it back in everyone's face. So, All right, so those are just a rundown of probably like the top matchups of the weekend. I know I didn't mention Arkansas, but it's because we're playing Western Carolina. I think that's a given. But there's some new rules that are being implemented in college football this season. There's three of them, and they're mainly just to speed up, uh, or they're mainly just to speed up the game. Essentially, kind of cut down on the time duration of the game. The most important one is the clock rule. The game clock will run after first downs, which is the same as NFL except for the last two minutes of each half. Previously. If you got a first down college football, clock stopped immediately no matter what time of the game it was. And I know time possession has meant something in the past, but if you can offensively, if you can have a long, drawn-out scoring drive, you could hold the ball for damn near a quarter and just completely keep the other team's offense off the field. And I know last week I said yards don't mean a whole lot, but they don't mean a whole lot if you can't capitalize, which is still true, but... Now with the clock not stopping until under two minutes at the end of each half, you could completely take away another team's offense just by keeping them off the field. You know, maybe running down the game clock from 30 seconds to five before you snap it. Three downs, get a first get, get a first down. I don't know. But time possession is going to kill some teams this year. The second rule, you cannot call consecutive timeouts anymore, which is also pretty interesting because there goes ice in the kicker. Can't do that anymore. Unless Arkansas called a timeout to ice Western Carolina's kicker and then their head coach called a timeout, that's the only way that consecutive timeouts can be called. Arkansas cannot call two in a row. The third rule is that untimed downs will only occur as needed in the second and fourth quarter. If there's a foul at the end of the first or third quarter, it carries over into the next quarter, which previously, if there was a penalty accepted for a penalty, or if there was a penalty accepted for a live ball foul during the last time down of a quarter, refs would extend the quarter with an untimed down. You normally would see that at the end of the first half for like a Hail Mary, if there's a penalty on a Hail Mary, or a penalty on a field goal at the end of the first half or something like that. One that immediately comes to mind is Alabama, is the kick six back in 2013. At halftime, there was a penalty with like zero seconds left on Alabama, and Auburn was able to re-kick their field goal with no time remaining on the clock, gave it three-point advantage. Who knows if the kick six would have ever had to happen if that would have been the case. So next, what would be our best win of the season? What would be our best win of the season? I know the easy answer here is Alabama, just because we haven't beat Alabama in so long. And with it being at Alabama, that would really be something special. But our best win of the season would, without a doubt, be LSU at LSU. First road game of the year. Hopefully you're 3-0 going into it. If we walk out of Baton Rouge with the win, already being undefeated, and we're 4-0 going into A&M, 
that leaves the season wide open because me and probably 99% of Hawk fans are counting that LSU game as a loss because it is going to be a tough game. It's probably going to be a night game or a CBS game. But I would rather catch LSU early on in the season than later on in the season because, you know, later on in the season, normally when we play them, uh, teams have different things figured out that they didn't earlier on earlier on in the season. But regardless, there's a lot riding on the season. I feel like more people are excited about Razorback football this year than they have in a long time. And I feel like you could say that every year, but this year just feels a little bit different. We have to, we have to find a way to win eight games. I don't care if we lost all four non-con games and won every conference game. You got to win eight games this season. There's no reason why we shouldn't win eight games, barring injuries. But you know, injuries happen no matter what. But circling back to it, our best win of the season, in my opinion, would regardless be at LSU. That means. I wouldn't say that means we've arrived, but for a team that's picked to win the national title, you walk into their place, first SEC matchup of the year, and beat them in that type of environment, that's a statement to the rest of the SEC. It's a big statement. All righty. So next we got the preview of Western Carolina. I'll make this quick, but they finished 6-5 and five last season. They returned a lot of their talent. They basically return everyone. They didn't lose a whole lot of people, and they added guys from Alabama, Florida State, Virginia Tech, North Carolina. Transfer portal, you know how it is. People are going to be – there's going to be big names from big schools and all over places now that are sprinkled around the country that you would never think would go to that school. But this is an offensive team. They really are. They were fifth in the FCS in yards per game last year. They averaged almost 500 yards a game of total offense average 485 yards a game. They set an all-time school record for yards in a season. What this team's going to do offensively, they're going to run a multitude of different formations. They're going to run a lot of motion. They're going to try to get they're going to try to get our defense's eyes moving up a bunch of different places, run a lot of jet sweeps, run a lot of fake jet sweeps, read options. They're going to run a lot of shifts, a lot of layered routes. They'll spread it out. They'll go pro style. They're very multiple in, in the types of looks they're going to throw at us. Their QB, his name is Cole Gonzalez. He split time as a starter last season. Threw for a little over 1,300 yards, completed about 63% of his passes, threw 11 touchdowns and seven INTs. So with their offense being as efficient as it is, their head coach believes that the best unit on the team, offensively or defensively, is their offensive line. They're a senior-led group. They're big. They're fast. They're not your average FCS offensive line. So this would be a good test for our defensive line. I hope our D-line throws them around like a bunch of ragdolls. But it'll be good to see what our offensive or what our defensive line is capable of going up against a offensive line that is seemingly better than what's expected at the FCS level. But defensively, I think this is where we're going to have a field day. They return almost every single starter on defense, and Western Carolina last year ranked 92nd out of 123 FCS teams in defending the run. They almost allowed 200 yards on the ground per game last year. For those types of teams, I understand allowing yardages like that in non-conference games, but conference games, it's bad. They also gave up about 215 yards per game through the air. So put those numbers together, that's about – that's over 400 yards total offense they're giving up on average per game. 
But that's a little quick recap of the new rules being implemented. Recap and preview of Western Carolina. Next, we're going to the depth chart and what to expect on Saturday. Alrighty, so now we get to the good stuff. The depth chart was just released today for Saturday's game, and there were a couple things that stuck out to me about different position groups, and I know it's week one. A lot of things are going to change. I also do think that certain starters, or there will be different starters each week depending on who we're playing, you know, what scheme we're running and things like that. So let's get into it. Like I said, just got released today. We'll go through every single position on offense and defense. So we all know who's running the show on offense. Mr. Uno, KJ Jefferson, Mr. Sardis himself. But this year, finally, like you all know, we got Mr. Jacoby Criswell, who was an Arkansas recruit at one point. He's from Moralton. He's an Arkansas boy. Backed up Drake May at North Carolina, who will be a first-round pick. Backed up Sam Howell, who's a starting quarterback for the Washington Commanders. Guy's got a lot of experience. Him, He's definitely given KJ a lot of competition in practice, where I felt like in years past, you know, KJ easily won the job over Malik Hornsby, and it wasn't really close. But I hope we see both of them Saturday. I really do. I hope we get to see a little bit of number six out there. But the third and fourth string position uh, or quarterback position is between Cade Fortin and freshman Malachi Singleton. That's not really listed here. But running backs, this is a loaded room. This room has so much talent. I'm surprised some of the guys that are here have stayed for as long as they have. So, of course, you got Rocket Sanders, Mr. Cinco, A.J. Green listed as the RB2. RB3 is Rashad DeBinion, RB4, Dominique Johnson, RB5, Isaiah Augustave. Augustave is going to be a freaking beast. He's going to be so good. I mean, he's he does get reps with the ones, so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him out there on Saturday. This is just – this depth chart is just a list of what they got to submit to media. You know, they, they could put this out there and then start A.J. Green and give him the first carry. You just never know. I mean, obviously, we know Rocket's going to start, but I'm just giving an example. Next, we move on to the wide receivers. So, something else I was going to touch on was kind of more of an in-depth dive into the wide receiver room because there's one thing that KJ Jefferson is accustomed to, and that is throwing to different receivers every season. This is the third year he'll have a completely different set of starting receivers from the previous year. And, I mean, he has no one – I mean – let me let me go back. He has this year. He has a completely new set of guys than he did last year. The only guy currently in the two deep that he's thrown passes to off last year's team was Bryce Stevens, and he's a second stringer, maybe even a third stringer. So the starting three wideouts that'll be out there on the first possession, the two outside receivers are going to be Andrew Armstrong and Isaac Tesla. Both of them came from D- Division II schools. Both are 6'4". Tesla, 6'4", 216. Absolute freak of nature. If y'all haven't seen his highlight film, go watch it. It is ridiculous. That dude is nice. I think he's really going to make some noise this year. Andrew Armstrong, who I also think is going to make some noise this year. That dude's got speed, got a lot of length, knows how to get open. You can wind him up in the slot. You can run him out of the backfield. I mean, the guy's very, very multiple in all the different things he can do. The slot receiver is Isaiah Satania from right here in Fayetteville, the XNA native. 
or the NWA native, sorry, not the friggin' airport. But Satania is also going to be our kick returner. Dude's a speedster. Uh, led the nation in receiving yards senior year of high school. Runs sub 4-4. Guy's fast. The only downside to him is that he's a little undersized. He's 5'11", 180. But on the depth chart that's listed on Hawk Sports, there's a lot of ors next to the one and twos for some of these guys. So the or next to Isaiah Satania's name, the guy below him is Jaden Wilson. Only thing about Jaden Wilson is that Jaden Wilson's a little banged up, might not play on Saturday. Who knows, status kind of up in the air. But he's 6'3", 180, so he got some height there as well. Bryce Stevens is listed as the third receiver there. He changed his number from 14 to 17 this year. The two guys behind Isaac Tesla are two true freshmen. You got Davion Dozier and Desmond James. Both guys are over 6'2 and over 200 pounds. The guy behind Andrew Armstrong is another transfer. His name's Tyrone Broden. He's from Bowling Green. He is 6'7, 195. There's a common pattern that I hope y'all are seeing with these with these receivers. The only receiver we had, we have two receivers out there, only two in held a three deep for the inside and outside receivers. There's only two guys that are under six foot two. These are big bodied receivers. And those are the only two guys under 200 pounds and Isaiah Satania and Bryce Stevens. There's some big boys. I love that. Big physical receivers that can run. I'm all about that. You don't want guys who run into issues like Trey Knox when we play receiver. Trey Knox is six four. Had good size, probably 200 pounds. He couldn't get off of press coverage. Then if they played off the ball, he didn't have quick enough footwork to get open. That's why he had to change the tight end. That happened. Same thing happened with TQ Jackson and other guys like that. I know those guys are Chad Morris recruits, but regardless, we got big receivers that can move, and I love that. And, I mean, this is a pretty solid-looking group of receivers, but the main question is who's the go-to guy? We don't have a track record of that with any of these guys. Based on the recent practices, I mean, the go-to guy could be any one of the listed starters in Tesla, Armstrong, or Satania. For in this Dan Eno's offense, what Arkansas fans need to look for, we're going to throw a lot of balls over the middle of the field, and there's going to be a big emphasis on the screen game. Hopefully we got some yak gods out there, as Hunter Gross would like to say. But – I wouldn't be surprised if there's a different player that led the team in catches, you know, a different player that led the team in receiving yardage and another one in touchdowns. We have a really, really deep group of receivers. So next we'll go to the tight ends. This is one of the position groups that I that kind of raised my brow a little bit because everyone's heard of Luke Haas, you know, high, high end four star recruit, borderline five star. He was a he was the number one tight end in the country at one point. It was an OU commit. We got him to commit to Arkansas. He decommitted from Arkansas, then recommitted. His brother's here as well. I mean, people have raved about that guy in camp, you know, saying that he's he's a man as a freshman. I mean, he, he really does look like a man. I mean, the guy's friggin' monstrous. 6'3", 242. But we have five guys with sit tight end. And a couple things is that one of the names I don't see in the five deep is Shamar Easter, the four-star from – I, I think it's Ashdown. I could be completely wrong, though, or Dumas from Southern Arkansas. I figured that guy would need some developing. He's pretty skinny. But you can at some point, you might be able to line that guy up at receiver. But regardless, he's just got to put meat on his bones. But the one through five goes Luke Haas, Francis Sherman. Francis Sherman's a tight end for Louisville. 
Nathan Bax, who's our biggest tight end, 6'4", 250. Marquise Gums, Varkis Gums, I'm sorry, from North Texas, 6'3", 242. <clears throat> Set records at North Texas with receiving touchdowns for a tight end as a freshman and receiving yards as a freshman at North Texas. And then Tyrus Washington, who caught a touchdown in the bowl game last year. This is one of the positions that I'm that I was talking about that could change week to week based off of who we're playing. Because seeing Francis Sherman wind up as the tight end two right now makes me think we're really going to run the ball on these guys because Francis Sherman doesn't have any receiving stats at Louisville. He was mainly used as a blocker. For those who remember kind of like Anthony Antoine back in the day, they bring that guy in number 19 back during the Bielman days. They bring him in motion. He would just crack back the outside linebacker. It's all he was good for. Might be all we're using Francis Sherman for. Who knows? <clears throat> I was a little disappointed to see Varkis Gums at four just because the guy was pretty highly touted in the transfer portal. And I know we went after him hard. We went after him hard enough to where, I mean, he went on a visit, was going to commit here, and then we pulled his offer because he was hell-bent on going on a visit to Cal. He committed to Cal, then decommitted from Cal, came to Arkansas. So, but the one thing I think that hurt Varkis is that he got here late. He wasn't involved in spring practice at all, where as Luke Haas was, Nathan Bax was, Tyrus Washington was. I think Tyrus Washington could be a beast as well. He's super mobile, super athletic. He's the second biggest tight end we have, and he might be one of the fastest, but we'll see. As of right now, tight end one is Luke Haas, and everyone else is fighting it out for the tight end two spot. Now, the biggest, now we go to the offensive line. The guard positions and the center positions, everyone knows, and there's no concern over both guards and center. Center, you got returner Bo Limmer, 6'5, 307. Right guard, you got Josh Braun, who's 6'6, 348. Florida transfer, good lord. 6'6, 348, good God almighty. Brady Latham, 6'5, 312. <coughs> redshirt senior, Bo Limmer, redshirt senior, Josh Braun. Redshirt junior. So these guys got experience. All three have SEC experience, and they're all huge. Those are definitely the leaders on the offensive line. The biggest question, as we all know, has been offensive tackle. <coughs> now, from what we can see, it's either going to be Andrew Shambly, who is a redshirt freshman, or Devon Manuel, who is a redshirt sophomore. Manuel seemed to have the position locked up, but he's been hurt. So it could be Shambly out there. Be a nice little homecoming for him. He's from Mama High School, played in Little Rock. Devon Manuel, 6'9, 3'10. Shambly, 6'6, 304. A little undersized for a tackle position, but I mean, the guy's young. And if he can win that job, that's huge for how young he is. <clears throat> and on the other side, you got you got Patrick Kudis, who's a true sophomore, and then a Marion Harris, also from Little Rock. But there's no or there. So it seems that Patrick Kudas, who's from Memphis, 6'5 through 13, will be the right tackle. The biggest question is who's going to be out there at left tackle for the Razorbacks. I think it's going to be Devon Manuel if he, if he's healthy. I think even if he doesn't play on Saturday, it's still going to be him going forward. But that's going to be one of the most interesting things to watch is how our offensive line plays. I know we're playing against an FCS school, but it doesn't matter. We've had returners on the offensive line, especially at tackle, every year that Pittman's been here except for this year. That's why it seems like there's a lot of question marks. But Pittman having an offensive line background, he does, knowing how to recruit and develop linemen, 
I trust him to get the job done. I might not be the biggest fan of Cody Kennedy, but I'm a big fan of Pittman, so I guess we'll see. On the defensive line, just nothing but dogs all over the place. The two deep at left defensive end, actually, sorry, three deep. To put into perspective, Deshaun Stewart started the season off for us against Cincy last year at defensive end. He's now the third string. He's behind Landon Jackson, 6'7", 281. John Morgan, the pit transfer, 6'2", 270. John Morgan the third was a dog at Pitt last year. He was he ate Tennessee alive when they played. I don't know if I've ever seen that film. I would go back and watch it if I were you. Left defensive tackle, got Torian Carter. Missed all of last year with the injury. He's finally back. Richard Sr., 6'3", 303. Behind, behind him is Kavivi Rose, 6'3". Also 303, redshirt senior. Right defensive tackle, you got Eric Gregory, Cameron Ball, and Tank Booker. I mean, these dudes, right defensive tackle, Eric Gregory, 6'4", 318. Cam Ball, 6'5", 320. Tank Booker, the Maryland transfer, 6'4", 351. Boy, that's some meat down there in the trenches. <clears throat> I love to see that. I love to see that. I got some dogs down there in the tackle positions. On the right defensive end, you got Trajan Jeffcoat. I think he's going to be one of the X factors for this defense this year. We we have a pretty good track record of taking defensive line transfers from Missouri and they and then panning out pretty well here at Arkansas. Two of those being Trey Williams and Markel Utzi. So hopefully Trajan can do the same. Trajan had a good game against Arkansas last year. That dude is what seems to be a man among boys is what Pittman's been saying. He's a beast. But I'm just excited to see how good this D-line is, how good they really are, because a solid and aggressive defensive line is a massive key, obviously to any defense, but especially how Travis Williams is going to call his defense, which we'll get to in a little bit. Well, let's move on to linebackers. you got our boy Pooh Paul who is 6'1", 233, he's up 15 pounds from last year, or Jaheim Thomas at linebacker, and Jordan Crook. Those are going to be the three main linebackers. The fourth one will be Antonio Greer. He's been a little bit banged up. He may or may not play Saturday. He's a South Florida transfer. But when he does get back healthy, he's going to start alongside Poupal. And I think the main three linebackers that we have rotating will be Chris Paul, Jaheim Thomas, who's transfer from – Cincy, and then Antonio Greer. And then the fourth guy will be Jordan Crook. Brad Spence, I'm telling you right now, he's a freshman, I believe, from Mississippi, number 22. 6'2", 240 as a freshman linebacker. Pretty scary. That dude's going to make a difference on special teams. I already know it. But safety, you got our boy HUD. You know, regardless of what the odds have been over the years, somehow Hudson Clark keeps finding his way out to the football field. Dude knows how to play. It's either going to be him or Jaden Johnson at what we call the field safety position because in a T-Will defense, we run a 4-2-5. So there's going to be more defensive back listed than linebackers. So the boundary safety is Mr. Walcott. Still can't say his first name. He's the transfer from Baylor. Then at corner, you got – well, so we have three cornerbacks, I'm sorry. You have the hog, which is kind of like – a rover, I'd say he plays safety, he plays nickel. We'll also play some corner if we need him to. That's, that'll be Snacks Johnson, another transfer from Baylor. Behind him is TJ Metcalf, who is a who is a cousin of DK Metcalf, 
who's probably going to get to play some this year because there's injuries that happen all the time. So 18 will definitely be in the mix a little bit. The other two cornerbacks, Nudie, Mr. Lockdown, Dwight McLaughlin, and then the boundary quarterback is Georgia transfer, Jaheim Singletary. I'm pumped about our secondary. I know I was pumped last year, but this secondary shits on last year's secondary. Then, you know, we got our boy, Mr. Reliable, Cam Little out there at kicker. The one downfall is that Max Fletcher is still punting the football for Arkansas, and that guy is booty cheeks when it comes to punting the football. I hope he proves me wrong. I really do. But good ward. The guy apparently just booms 70 yarders in practice, goes out to the game, can't punt it more than 25 yards. He punts it more than 40. If he has a 45-yard average on punts that's just kind of mediocre, I'd be a-okay with it. It's a big upgrade from last year. Ugh. Return-wise, it's either going to be Isaiah Satania or, Jay, or freshman Jalen Braxton back there at kick returner and punt returner. But I don't know. I guess we'll see. That's kind of a rundown of the depth chart for Saturday. Next, we're going to jump into what to look for on Saturday, T-Wall defense, and a score prediction. So I know we just went over the depth chart. I know that's kind of a lot. Almost lost my breath talking. It's a little hot in this podcast room. I ain't going to lie to you. But just a couple things to look for on Saturday. Kind of what we talked about earlier, the offensive line unit. See what we can do there in terms of really generating a a push on the defensive line. See if we can carve out some easy holes from Rocket. Give KJ some time to throw the football. Defensively, I really want to see good tackling in the open field. Back to offense, how improved is KJ? Do we see Jacoby Criswell? Who knows? Personally, I would just love to be up 30-plus at halftime, even 28-plus at halftime, and all we do is play the backups the rest of the second half. Kind of like how we did the UAPB a couple years ago. We were up 40-something nothing at halftime, sat the starters, let the backups come in and get their shine a little bit, which they didn't score a point. That's neither here nor there. But ideally, I'd like to see – KJ play the entire first half, give us a good enough lead to where we see Jacoby come in second half, really get slinging around, play some football in his home state and just have a good time and let the fans see what a good quarterback or backup quarterback looks like. But all around offensively, I mean, I'm an open book. Just show me a little bit of everything. I'd love a couple big passes, especially one that take takes the top off, maybe a play action, 75-yard bomb to Satania or something like that, or Andrew Armstrong. Then the other big big pass play, doesn't even have to go for a touchdown. It would be just you know, like a bubble screen or a tunnel screen, just a lot of yards after the catch. I'd love to see consistent five- to six-yard rush plays, consistent offensive line play. And I'm, I'm just interested to see the different looks we're going to see with the Enos offense. Will we run some of the triple option out of the shotgun with K.J., Rocket, and Dominic Johnson? Might run some of that on the goal line. How often do we go under center? I mean, I can count on one hand how many times we saw K.J. Jefferson go under center. And if we did, he snuck it. That was it. And I think we'll see him a lot more under center this year. We'll see a lot of pistol, some of the shotgun, over pro style. You're going to see a multitude of looks from Enos offense. Defensively, we'll get more into a breakdown of what I think we'll see later on, but just high level terms of things I want to I want to see. Kind of how I mentioned earlier, I want to see what the defensive line can do, how deep we are as a unit, 
how much of a pass rush we can generate with just the defensive line. Do we run stunts? Do we run twists? You know, what all are we going to see with that? Do we bull rush off the edge? Do we bring additional pressure with linebackers? Who knows? I just want to see our, our defensive line live in their backfield and our linebackers not have to blitz and we can run simple man coverage across the board, keep things simple, and just hold them to 10 or fewer points. I'd like to see some ball hawks in the secondary, a lot of pass breakups without any pass interference calls or holding calls. I want to see 11 dudes flying to the football. And I really want to see – I'm just really, really interested to see how the how our safeties play. Has Jaden Johnson t- taken a step in improvement from last year? How much better has Hudson Clark gotten? How are the Baylor guys? How is Jaheim Singletary? You know, things like that just – Seeing a lot of the new faces we have on the defensive side of the ball, how much they'll get to play, where they big time gets, are there glimpses of greatness there? Who knows? But some of you know, there's some new faces to watch for. Some of the freshmen I think you'll see Saturday are definitely gonna see Luke Cost, number nine, Isaiah Augustave, Mr. Dozier, Jalen Braxton. The transfers you'll see, there'll be a lot more transfers. You got Snacks Johnson, Jaheim Thomas, Mr. Walcott, can't say his first name. Jonathan Braun, Jaheim Singletary, Andrew Armstrong, Isaac Tesla, John Morgan, and Tank Booker. Those are just to name a few. But now we'll get to our defense and a Travis Williams defense and what I believe he's going to do schematically and kind of what I would compare it to in terms of defenses in the past. But honestly, what stands out to me is so first, we're going to, the initial formation is a 4 2 5. What stands out to me and that I think everyone can have a sigh of relief of is that we're always going to be running the forefront. There's no more of this 3-5-3. There's no more of this 3-2-7 or sorry, 3-2-6 that we used to run under Barry Odom, stuff like that. Initially with this 4-2-5, though, it's going to look like we run five defensive backs, which I listed earlier in the depth chart. We had a field corner, a hog corner, like a you know, what we called the hog, and then our two other corners along with safeties. and But with this, you could also sub out two defensive backs, bring in two linebackers, and walk them down from the safety position or a nickel spot. And it looks like we're running a 4-4 with cover one with just a high safety man across the board. That's probably what we'll do. I don't know. I'd say that's probably what we're going to do in short yardage situations, which is either a lot of cover one, a lot of cover zero, and just overall, but what I've gathered from about Travis Williams, and he's kind of taken the philosophy that that was used at Auburn under Gus Malzahn, there's some similarities between what the defenses at Auburn looked like versus what the defenses that Reggie Herring ran, if for those who remember Reggie Herring. He's the defensive coordinator under Houston Nutt. There's one thing that was in common between those defenses, and that is aggression. I know I talked about aggression earlier, but <clears throat> this defensive approach really emphasizes controlling the line of scrimmage, putting a ton of pressure on the passing game of opponents, running blitzes, stunts, twists, you know, bull rushing, and all of that leads to one thing, which is it puts our secondary in a lot of feast or famine situations, meaning we're playing a ton of man-to-man coverage. And I know what a lot of people think in that Arkansas, for a long time, we haven't been a primary man-to-man coverage type team. 
But we're going to have to be with the guys we got now. We have some solid DBs. We have a solid defensive line. And we're, we don't have that bend-don't-break BS that Barry Odom used to run anymore. We're going to have to run the risk of giving up a big play or a home, or a home run ball. That's always going to be prevalent. But the positives to running a defense that's that aggressive is that this form of defense results in a lot of negative yardage situations. It could put defenses, you know, it results in a lot of tackles for loss, a lot of quarterback hurries, a lot of quarterback hits, you know, really roughing up another team's offensive line, putting a lot of pressure on them constantly. It leads to bad throws. It leads to quarterbacks throwing off their back foot, trying to make tough throws to the sideline, which leads to turnovers. This defense relies heavily on pressure that's generated from the defensive line. And if it's successful, it really doesn't allow our corners or our safeties or linebackers to have to cover guys for an elongated period of time. And I really don't think Travis Williams or Marcus Woodson would have vouched to implement this type of defense if we didn't have the talent at corner that we do now, which is talent that we haven't had in quite some time. I mean, let's be honest, when's the last time we had a shutdown corner in Dwight McLaughlin? When's the last time we had another uber-talented cornerback across from him in Jaheim Singletary? I know we had Quincy McAdoo last year, but we got a small sample size of him. And Quincy was a dog. He really was. Still, I hate that what happened to him happened to him. And not having him is really going to sting this season. And it might leave, you know, some people might not feel as strongly about Jaheim Singletary as I do because we haven't seen him play yet. We saw McAdoo play, and we saw that he was very, very good at corner for not having played the position very long at all. And I completely understand that. Nudy puts the straps on people, and Jaheim Singletary is going to get everyone's attention as well. Ever since he stepped on campus, he wasn't even here for the spring. He got here in the summer, and ever since he stepped on campus, that other cornerback position on the opposite side of Nudie has been his, and there really hasn't been anyone close to him. And another big key to a Travis Williams defense that differs from Barry Odom's defense is that along with putting a lot of pressure on opponents' offensive line and quarterback and just trying to disrupt their offensive game plan as it is, we have to do a much, much better job of open field tackling than we have in the past. Because I think back to the Texas A&M-Arkansas game in 2021. And even when we played Mississippi State in 2020 and 2021, dropping everyone into coverage and only rushing three, yeah, we might have given other teams a while to throw the football. But if nothing was open downfield, they'd have to check it down to a running back. And next thing the running back knew – There were six or seven guys on him, so we really didn't have to tackle in the open field. But then when that zone defense was getting exposed, like against teams like Alabama, teams that could really throw the football, even like Auburn in 2021, we had to make open field tackles. We couldn't. And regardless of what defense you're running, you got to make open field tackles. You really do. And with a zone-driven defense like the one that Odom had, you always had guys around the football because they weren't covering one specific man. They were just covering an area. If a tight end went and sat down in a, in a vacant zone spot, as soon as he caught the ball, there's probably going to be two guys around him immediately. So you didn't have to worry about making open field tackling as much in terms of one-on-one. But running the amount of man-to-man that we're going to run in this defense because of the aggressive approach that I believe we're going to take, I mean, it, we're going to give up catches. Obviously, it's going to happen, but our linebackers, our safeties, our corners have to make tackles or at least have to wrap them up and stop them and wait for help. 
and we got to fly to the football. We're not going to make every open field tackle, but by God, if we can slow a guy down, there better be someone else right there to right there to hit him, knock him out of bounds, or get him to the ground because the susceptibility to the home run ball or giving a, giving up a big play is going to be there. It, it is. But I'd rather be aggressive on defense than the bend-don't-break stuff. It was so frustrating, so frustrating getting teams third and three and knowing we weren't going to stop them. And then we'd wait till we get to the goal line and hopefully we'd stop them. I'm tired of that. I, I want an aggressive defense. I want to go after the other team's quarterback. I want to constantly put pressure on the other team's offense. I want to plug holes. I want to have quarterbacks running for their lives, throwing off their back foot, making stupid throws, getting hit. Who the hell cares if we get a targeting call? Thump their ass for all I care. That what that Gonzalez kid for Western Carolina sets back there, I hope he gets a face mask to the ribs after he throws the football. You know, we got to let him know. He's here in the SEC. It's time to play. I hope Tate and Booker lays on him. I really do. But regardless, I think this defensive philosophy, like I touched on a little bit earlier, is going to give us the ability to generate a lot of turnovers, which is something that Arkansas defenses really aren't accustomed to doing. I mean, the last team to really churn out turnovers held the 2020 team, churned out some turnovers, but that's mainly because we picked off Matt Corral six times in one game. The last Arkansas defense that really – generated a lot of turnovers was the 2014-2015 defense with Darius Phylon, Trey Flowers, Martrell Spate. That team created turnovers. And even then, they weren't just – I mean, it's not like we were turning people over every game. Yeah, we shut out two teams in a row, which I don't believe Arkansas has done since. But I think this team can really generate some turnovers, some pick sixes – a lot more interceptions than we have in the past, and maybe some strip sacks. Just all depends on how aggressive we can really channel this thing defensively. But lastly, to wrap up the episode, my score prediction for Saturday is going to be 49-10. I think the Razorbacks are up comfortably at halftime, let's say 35-7. We let the backups come in. Maybe Jacoby Criswell gets in the end zone for the first time in his home state. We give up a field goal at the end of the game or something like that. But I'd like to get a, the perfect blend of seeing all the new faces we have on offense and defense in the first half, great execution offensively and defensively, and then seeing some of the new guys and the younger guys that we can get excited for in the future of the second half. Because next year, I'm telling you right now, <clears throat> as long as KJ doesn't get hurt, he's probably going to the NFL after this, and it's going to be Jacoby Criswell's show. And if for some reason KJ does go down, we have a very, very, very good backup behind him who would start at a lot of SEC schools. I'm really excited to see what we have on Saturday. I mean, hell, it's it's game day. We've been waiting how many months? We've been waiting, what, seven, eight months for this? Yeah, seven, eight months we've been waiting on college football. And it's finally here. I'm pumped. I don't know about y'all. But hopefully next time we talk, Hogs will want to know. Coming back home to Fayetteville to play Kent State, and I'll see you guys next week.